Welcome to the Life Giver Sunday Special. If we truly want to become a life giver in our home and marriage, we have to go to the Creator of life and allow Him to breathe life back into our own heart. The Life Giver Sunday Special is still a place for honest conversation, but it will aim to encourage your faith and restore your soul. Welcome to another episode of the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. Thank you so much for joining me for another Sunday special. Now, if you have um, not been following me on the podcast, we are in the middle or going towards the end of season four, and we've tried something new this year where we have once a month had what I'm calling a Sunday special, where we still have honest conversation about topics that relate to the service lifestyle, but these are topics that we wrestle in in our faith and we have theological conversation and talk about how it affects our relationship with God and I have really enjoyed that this season and probably will continue that into season five. I've got a lot of really great feedback from all of you guys who are enjoying kind of just this really honest conversation and some of the guests that I've had on. And so today we are going to have a very interesting conversation, or at least I'm going to have a conversation with you on a topic that's been on my heart for a very long time. And it's only been this year that I have um, really um, gotten a little bit more into scripture to kind of find some of those answers. And I feel like I have my words a little bit better for this topic. Um, you know, Matt and I love, love to serve the service uh, families that are out there, whether you're first responders or military. Obviously, for him as a chaplain, it is his calling. It's what he does professionally as a job. And I have really um, embraced that as part of my job, too. We are just all in. And part of that is because we're a service family ourselves. And Matt comes from a service family. My dad was also an Air Force pilot. So I think it's just in our blood. And we have just a huge heart for all of you out there, regardless of what your job is and what you've been asked to do or what you've been involved in. And our deepest desire really is just to love people, regardless of the experiences that they've had. And especially in the service lifestyle, um, there's a lot of people who have um, had to do some things that are not the average American experience. In other words, there's a lot of service members out there that have been in combat who have um, really come face to face with good and evil, um, specifically evil. And um, a lot of them have come back having um, blood on their hands, basically. And today's episode is titled The Warrior with Blood on His Hands because that's what I want us to talk about. Um, It's something that is kind of a taboo topic, I think, even in marriages, that if you're married to a service member or even a first responder, um, it's a tough conversation to have. It is the conversation of, have you um, taken another life and what does that mean? And I think it's such a tough conversation because it's not something that we as human beings are created to do. It's something you're taking a life as a serious thing. And when you sign up for this service lifestyle because you want to be about good, you want to be about the business of doing good and bringing good to the world. And you have a sense of responsibility and integrity and um, protecting innocence. And you get into this job because of those deep values for wanting to be the good in the world. And then you get into the job and realize that part of being the good in the world means that you have to face the evil of the world. And for many of you out there, that means um, it has involved taking a life. And and that's part of the job is that you have to be willing to give your life and you have to be willing to take a life. 
And a lot of people struggle with talking about that. Um, And I see a lot of marriages even struggle with talking about that even in the marriage. And I hope to be able to have this podcast today be maybe a discussion starter, um, even in your marriage, that you can, if you're a military spouse or a first responder spouse that is listening to this, that hopefully this will give you some words to take to your serving spouse and maybe generate some discussion around this. Um, I know that one of the things we say um, a lot about civilian conversation is that one of the most awkward things that a serving spouse, one of the most awkward conversations that a serving spouse can have is with a civilian who doesn't know what to say and doesn't know how to talk about this thing, this job that you have um, that has such a requirement on your life and so much sacrifice. And there have been conversations where a civilian has said, so have you killed anybody? You know, and there's that curiosity of not only what was that like, but I think the curiosity is sometimes like, now what what do you think about that? Like if, you know, it's one thing to live in this culture where we have mass casualties happening and we we look at somebody who has blood on their hands and we go, well, there must be something wrong with them that they would go and take life, take innocent life that way. But we don't quite know what to do with somebody who's asked to be able to take a life and still be good. And I think that there is that awkwardness in that conversation. And that's where that curiosity is coming from, um, from those civilians that ask those questions. Or maybe it's family members who have asked you that question. It is, you know, it's a question of how do you wrestle with that in your spirit? Like, and, and we, we know that you're still good and we're thankful that you can be that person on the front lines and, and protect us and protect your community and protect people's innocence. But there's that curiosity of, well, then what does that then do to a person's spirit once they've taken that life and they have blood on their hands? And I think that's where that question is coming from. And I think the reason why that is an awkward conversation for the serving spouse to have is that I don't think that we talk about this enough for the serving spouse, that first responder or that military member to be able to answer that for themselves. Like, I think they struggle. A lot of people struggle with that as well. Like, what does that then say about me Um, that I've had to take that life? And Matt and I have worked with a lot of people who struggle with that question and you know we see a lot of service members that get really excited about deployment and wanting to go into combat and want to um, have their skills tested and, and to have that opportunity to go to war. I guess there's a little bit of excitement in that and, and finding your purpose in that. But we've also worked with a lot of service members who come back from those experiences, a lot of times those experiences being very intense experiences where a lot of life has been taken and they feel different, they feel changed, and it's not something that they would wish on anybody. Um, and it's definitely not something that they would want to go in and do again. Um, but their driving factor was obviously survival in some cases, but also about making sure that their battle buddy, the person next to them on their left and their right, comes home and comes home safe, and that that is really the driving force, and that's what it was about. Um, but coming back and then dealing with, you know, what do I do with this? Like, what does this mean about me? Um, how do I reconcile this part of me um, and also reintegrate into my family and, and see the innocence of my children? And, and how do I reconcile the fact that I feel different 
And how do I also reconcile that with God? Does God see me different? What does God think about what it is that I had to do? That you walked in feeling like, I'm signing up for this job because I want to be the good in the world and I want to fight the evil in the world. Um, But what do I do with the fact that, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says thou shalt not kill. What does that say about me? What does God say about me? And so that's what I wanted today's episode to be about because it's been on my mind for a long time that, of course, I felt like I had an answer for that. And I feel like Matt has always had an answer for that. He often has even better answers than I have. Um, But I really wanted to know what does God actually say about that and where could I point people to in scripture? But I really, in this episode, wanted to be able to point those of you who are listening to scripture where God actually has an answer to this. And I think that this is probably one of the biggest topics that we could cover um, to find our words and more importantly, to find God's words about this topic. And so we are going to dive in. And I'm really excited about it, and I'm prayerfully hoping that God is going to give me the right words to talk about it um, for those of you who are family members so that you have words, but also in case there are service members or first responders that are listening to this as well, that hopefully God gives me the words to you to speak peace into your life and to speak his love into your heart so that you know um, what I know, which is that God loves you, he accepts you, um, and that there is still a place for you um, in your relationship with God if that's something that you're wrestling with. So we're going to dive in, um, and I'm going to get a little nerdy with you guys, and we're going to dive into the story of David. And we're going to talk about David and his life and who he was, and um, and And I'm really excited about it, too, because the more I dive into David's life, the more I'm like, this is um, an amazing story of basically a military family. Um, And and first responders, this applies to you, too. And there's so many dynamics and relationships that we could have many episodes pulling from David's story where we could see ourselves in from this community perspective in his story. And I'm so thankful that... um, that it's in God's word because we see ourselves then um, that God has a message for us too. So let's talk about David here just for a second. Let's talk about first what we commonly think of when we think about David. Um, Those of you who were raised in the church probably know the story of David and Goliath when he was much younger, where he takes down this Philistine giant with a slingshot and a stone, right? Um, Others of you may have um, heard of David as him being a king or that he's in the lineage of Jesus, you know, um, or maybe that um, he was a friend of God, right? That is a huge piece of this is that we know even throughout into the New Testament that people looked back on David and that um, David had a relationship with God. They were friends. And I think that um, every major person throughout the God story has a unique experience or a unique relationship with God. Moses has a very unique relationship with God um, where Moses got to see the face of God, right? Or at least he was hiding, you know, um, in the cleft of a rock, you know, and God passed by him, you know. So all of these people had very interesting relationships with God, but it was David that was called a friend of God. So that was a very unique relationship that no other person in scripture other than maybe Jesus um, could say that about their relationship with God. But those are some of the common things that come up when we think about David. Well, David was also, 
He was also a king. Maybe you knew that about David. Um, But he was a very interesting king. Um, We hear throughout the Old Testament, it goes through so many kings of Israel just passed down from one to the other. And and if I could give a theme to what was going on with all these kings, is so many of them could not get it right. So many of them maybe either tried to start off with, you know, following God's commands and doing the right thing and making sure that everything was pointed to um, Jehovah God, this Old Testament God. And then they would kind of, you know, do what the people wanted and then bring in some other gods and they would just kind of fall away from doing the right thing. Um, And there were some other kings that just didn't even try, right? But there's a few kings in here that are trying their best to like really do it right. And there's a few that do it right. And David was one of those that for like really did it right, even though he as a human being did a lot of things wrong. And we'll come up with and talk about some of those. But he was a very interesting king. He um, ruled for a long time. Um, I think about 40 years is, is the duration that he ruled. And also, interestingly enough, he passed down um, the throne to his son Solomon before he passed away. And he did that intentionally. So there was actually a period of time at the end of his life where he was no longer king and he had actually given that responsibility to Solomon. So we're going to kind of, when we wrap up today, we're going to kind of end there and talk about how that's interesting to this whole topic of what does it mean for there to be a warrior with blood on his hands. So David was this amazing king, but he um, and he loved God and he served God and wanted to do things the right way. Um, And he obviously had a very good relationship or at least a starting relationship from a very young age in that it wasn't that David took down this Philistine giant when he was younger. It was actually God through him that God took down that Philistine giant through David. And so David kind of begins at a very young age with this relationship with God. And so by the time he becomes actually king, he is very well known um, to be a strong and mighty man. You know, and he was a very popular man, and that's why everybody was excited about him being king. But he was known as a warrior king. This is a military king. And people served him, wanted to serve him, wanted to serve under him within the military. Um, He was well known for his own strength, that he himself would go into battle. He was not a king that kind of stayed back in the palace and watched everybody else fight. He was out on the battlefield too and known for killing many men um, on the enemy's side himself. He also and he led hundreds of thousands of military members and we don't even quite know the numbers. In fact, um, there is points of scripture where it does break it down and it tells you like just how many people he led and it was a huge military force that he led. Um, so think about it like almost from like General Milley right now, um, having that kind of role, but General Milley um, being strong and out on the battlefield and on the front lines himself and being known as somebody who um, would go into battle and had a lot of blood on his hands and knew what it meant to battle. So David was a mighty warrior, um, but he also surrounded himself with what he called mighty men. So think of this as about 30 men who were the most elite military men of his army. These are like top-notch, strong men. Um, and, it, and it recounts, when it talks about um, David's mighty men, he actually talks about how some of them killed th- like 300 men with their bare hands. Like these are like 
tough guys. We're not just talking about special ops elite or, you know, certain skill sets here and there. We're talking about, if I can say this on a Sunday special, these are the badasses of David's military force. And so it is worth it for you to go through and read more about David's life because um, there's so much that we could, that resonates with us. So um, we're going to talk actually specifically um, about um, David in chapter 8, 2 Samuel verses 8, um, but we're going to camp out in chapter 7. So if you're sitting somewhere and you want to pull out um, scripture and follow along with me, I would love for you to do that. Um, I also want to point out, though, that one of David's mighty men, and you're going to hear this in the next episode, Matt joins me again, and we talk a little bit. He brings up um, David, actually, in the next, um, briefly, in the next episode, and you're going to hear him talk about David's mighty men. Um, But I want to point out that, you know, most of us probably know also about David, the story of um, Bathsheba, that while he was back at the palace and some of his men were out fighting, and some of his mighty men were actually out fighting. Um, he saw Bathsheba bathing, and Bathsheba was a military spouse who happened to be married to one of his mighty men. Um, and that mighty man's name was Uriah, and Bathsheba and he um, had an affair with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba got pregnant. And um, in order to fix this problem that he caused, he actually um, had Uriah put out on the front lines and hoping that he would get killed. And long story short, Uriah does get killed. Um, and that's a significant story. When you think about, you know, we're all in this service culture. We know what it means to serve alongside um, the camaraderie of your brothers. And here we have even David, the friend of God, who has uh, not only an amazing relationship with God, but also is an incredible leader that everyone trusts. There's a story that you're going to hear Matt talk about in the next episode where some of these mighty men put their own lives at risk just to get David a cup of water. And yet, here's David also as a human, a flawed human, who has an affair with one of his guys, one of his brother's wives, right? Gets her pregnant, and then he has... he finds himself in a situation where he's trying to kill one of his brothers. So um, this is a flawed human being, but I think that we um, can see a lot of commonality in some of the things that he experienced. So that's a little bit about David. But what I want to point out in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is that um, David was given victory over all of the wars, all of the battles that he fought. Um, And specifically in chapter 8, I want to point out that he says... Um, In verse 14, actually verse 13, it says, And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons through Edom, and all of the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So I want you to hear in that statement, the Lord gave David victory. God is the one that put David on the throne. God is the one that put David in a situation to be a warrior king. And God put David in a situation where he was calling David to be this mighty king, fighting these battles, and God gave David victory. Okay, that specifically says that God was the one that brought victory to David. So David became extremely famous in the land, but also among his people as being this amazing warrior king that really won every battle that they went into. And so you could understand that people probably looked at David 
from a celebrity standpoint even and said, there's something about this guy, right? He's winning every battle. He's a strong man himself. Um, God must be on David's side. And that's where we're going to get into actually chapter seven. We're going to go back a chapter and we're going to see kind of just one little snippet that I want to point out of um, what can happen when we start seeing people from a charismatic celebrity standpoint of saying, you know, God must be on his side when it's actually the other way around. David was on God's side and God gave him victory. Now, I know I'm going back a chapter. This is where I'm getting nerdy, but I want to point this out. Um, I'm going back to chapter seven. Second Samuel kind of goes out of chronological order here and there. Um, if you, we're going to reflect and we're going to go to second chronicles here into second and chronicles. It means that it's a little bit more in chronicle order. And so that's why we're going to look in both places. Um, but chapter eight is really talking about all of David's victories and really how um, how mighty of a warrior king he actually was. Um, and it summarizes all of that. But it's back in chapter seven that I really want to point out something very interesting. So um at this point in chapter seven, David is in the palace. Okay, he's not out on the battlefield. And we know that this is kind of later in um, his life, um, not at the end of his life, but it's later in his life, specifically because it references that it's a time of peace. Okay, and that's one of the reasons that we know. And it starts off in chapter seven that after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. Um, and this is why we know that this is later in life. So I, I want you to picture David. He's in the palace and he has been a great warrior king who's won a lot of battles, all the battles, right? And this is also, by the way, probably after um, he has spent a significant amount of time hiding in a cave alone where enemies were after him. And, um, and much of Psalms, if you didn't know this, much of Psalms is written by David. David in those caves, thinking that he's going to die, his enemies are after him, and there's various points throughout Psalms where he is um, pleading for God to rescue him, pleading for God to um, sometimes just take his life and get it over with. I mean, can you imagine hiding in a cave? Think about this really strong warrior king that with his bare hands can um, fight battles and then hiding in a cave and his body withering to the point that he's begging for death. Okay, there's so many things that we could pull from that, um, even in our own experience of, of living this lifestyle. So many of you service members out there that are expected to keep your bodies strong and what it's like to go through your career and feel your body getting broken over time and being able to do less and less. And what does that say about you as a warrior? Right. So we can even picture David in these caves wrestling in his relationship with God. And during this time, though, you can just imagine that David and God, this is where they got really close, right? This is where they hashed things out. This is where David is pleading to God, um, where he is developing that relationship with God. He doesn't have advisors around him. He doesn't have um, truth speakers or prophets or anyone helping him understand um, God's will for his life. It is him and God. And I, this is me saying this, this is not necessarily coming from a specific place in scripture. But I believe that it is in that cave and in that suffering and in that in that wrestling that God had in his relationship with God in those caves, that that is where their friendship actually um, began and where it was solidified. And I, I want us to remember that, that um, friendship and our marriages, 
Relationships get deeper when we wrestle through the tough stuff. That's where character is built and where trust is established and that we don't have strong friends when everything is going great. Some of our deepest friendships and some of our um, our best intimacy, even in our marriage, comes from wrestling with the tough stuff. And David and God had done that and spent that time. And, and so this point in 2 Samuel 7 is after that, okay? And so David is now in the palace. He has had this experience with God, so many experiences with God, and he has truly seen God come through for him, that he trusts him, that he owes something to God. You can almost imagine him wanting to give back to God because he has been through all of that, and now he's here back on his throne in the palace, safe, strong probably again, and realizing he owes it all to God, okay? And that's where we have him now sitting in the palace. And he says to Nathan the prophet, so Nathan is his advisor and a good friend. He says, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, think of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? (laughs) The Ark of the Covenant is basically the mercy seat of God in the Old Testament. Um, It is the throne of God. It's like kind of the earthly throne of God. And wherever they take the ark, there's victory in battle, right? Because they have God with them. And so this is the throne of God, God's dwelling place. And with Moses, um, God gives clear instruction to Moses to build a tabernacle, which is basically a traveling tent for the Ark of the Covenant so that when they settle down in a place, they build that tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant goes into that tent, and there's a whole set of interesting things that happen in the Holy of Holies because that is the mercy seat or the throne of God where God dwells among his people. So that is the Ark of the Covenant. So David is saying, here I am in a palace, and the throne of God, God's dwelling place, is in a tent. There's something wrong with that, right? So Nathan then replies to the king. He goes, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. And and what's interesting here is Nathan gets ahead of God and he makes the assumption, here's that celebrity moment, right? He makes the assumption that because of what he's seen manifested in David's life, that God must be on David's side. So whatever David wants to do, God's going to make it happen. And that's a, a big dangerous red flag that we're seeing, that it's not that God was on David's side. It was that David had faith in God, and David was on God's side. So Nathan makes a big mistake here by saying, if it's on your heart, then surely God must want you to do it. So interestingly enough, God actually goes to Nathan to correct Nathan in order to deliver the message to David. So instead of God going straight to David, God takes an opportunity to correct Nathan here and set Nathan straight, which I love in scripture when God sets people straight. I don't like it personally when he does it with me, but I love seeing God's character when he is correcting somebody as a good father would. So I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I do want to point out um, what God is saying to Nathan in his correction and his rebuking, but also his message to David about his desire to build something for God. 
So he says, go and tell, this is what God is saying to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock. Remember, David was a shepherd when he was a young boy to be a ruler over my people of Israel. Basically, he's saying, I brought you to this palace that you're sitting in now. It's me. And I have been dwelling in a tent because it's what I wanted. He says, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And then he goes on um, a little bit longer, and then he goes, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So there's a couple interesting things here. It is on David's heart for probably great intentions that he's going, man, who am I to be a king sitting in a palace? And yet the God Almighty is in a tent. There's something reversed about that. In other words, David was like, I think God needs me. God needs me to build him something better for him to dwell in. And God comes and corrects him and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I am exactly where I wanted to be. And let me remind you that you're only where you're at because I brought you there. Okay. And then he goes, and let me flip this just for the fun of it. I'm actually going to build a place for you. And I actually, the reason why I wanted to point this out is that I find great comfort in the fact that God has been paying attention to the fact that his people have been moving from place to place to place and that they haven't been able to settle in and that they feel disturbed by that. And I find great comfort in that. Being a military family that often has to relocate, that God sees me. He sees you. He sees that you are bouncing all over the place and that there's something in your spirit that needs to settle. And I know that God sees that that disturbs you and that he wants to provide a settling of your spirit and it may not be time right now to give you that but he has great intention to settle your spirit and maybe settle you physically at some point but that he's completely tracking that in your life but in in the meantime I think that what God is offering is a settling of our spirits to remind us that we are exactly where we are because God has allowed it that he is almighty and sovereign and that we need to trust that That if he hasn't settled you yet, and I'm speaking this to myself in my own life, because you guys have been listening to my podcast episodes lately, that this was a rough PCS for me, but that God um, will settle us when it's time, but that we can find a great settling of our spirit and knowing that he knows that and that he can ground our hearts, but he has us where he has us and he's allowing it for a reason. So I hope that that encourages one of you, but he's basically telling um, David about the desire of his heart. No. So that also goes against what we are brought up in, in our, I think, our church world, that God will give you the desires of your heart, that God gives you those desires, and that if it's a desire, then he's going to give it to you. And that was Nathan's mistake, too. Sometimes we have a desire of our heart, and it's not within the will of God, and that God sometimes needs to tell us no. Now, here's where we get to a really interesting part, okay? So we are now going to flip over to Chronicles, First Chronicles, 
Um, and and we kind of get things in a little bit more order and we get a little bit bigger of an answer as to more of why God told David no. Now, let me set the scene here. Fast forward years later. Okay, this is years after David got the no from God to build a tabernacle. I'm sorry, at the temple for the Ark of the Covenant. So we fast forwarded, you know, this is towards the end of David's life. And I want you to know that David didn't lose that desire to build a dwelling place for God. It didn't go away just because God said no. God actually ends up saying, um, you're not the one to build it. I'm actually going to ask your son Solomon to build it instead. Um, so David knows that that there is going to be a dwelling place, that the desire of his heart um, is a no for him, but that God is going to allow it or he's going to let it happen. Um, but it's actually going to be his son that gets to do it. So David continues to have this be a desire of his heart. He doesn't put it away. He doesn't forget it. This, um, I think, I'm kind of reading into scripture a little bit here, but I think that this becomes a little bit of an obsession for David because years later, when we get towards the end of his life, we find that David has actually been accumulating materials and plans and designs in order to help build this temple that his son Solomon is going to get to build instead of him. So even though he got a no from God, David didn't put this away. This is a huge desire for him. I, that's what I'm wanting you to, to get the message right now. This is a big deal for David. God has done a lot for him, has saved him and rescued him and brought him victory and put him on a throne. And there is something in David that says, I owe you. There's nothing I can give you to say thank you for bringing me to this place and for giving me the blessings that you've given me in my life and on my family. And there's got to be one thing that I can do to thank you and give back to you. And all I want to do is give you a dwelling place. And I, I think that that's part of his desire is that he wants to give back. And so we're going to sit here in this moment and think about what this no felt like for David when God told him no. Because it was the one thing he wanted to do, to give back, and God tells him no. And I, th- and I think that that had to be difficult. So we're now in First Chronicles. So if you're, if you're kind of go- following along with me, we're in First Chronicles. By the way, in First Chronicles... Um, chapter 27 that's a great one to read because it actually breaks down the army divisions that David led and you see the numbers of of men um, that fought alongside of him and it's pretty impressive <clears throat> so we're actually going to go to Chronicles first Chronicles 28 and so this is the point where David is basically summoning the all of Israel in Jerusalem, all of the Israelites in Jerusalem. And he is going to officially hand this over, this project that he has a huge desire for, that he's handing it over to Solomon. And I want to set the stage, too, of how big of an event this is, because I think this also shows how important it was to David. But it says um, in verse 1, David summoned all of the officials of Israel to, to assemble at Jerusalem, the officer over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service to the, of the king, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, there's those mighty men again, the mighty men and all the brave warriors. Okay, so this is a king in his late age that still identifies with being a warrior 
and that these are his men, right? Talk about being a veteran and staying involved. Even though he's the king, a military king, these are his peeps. These are his people, right? So he gathers everybody together. King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. Here's where I want you to really pay attention. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. Do you hear that? I had it in my heart. He has given everything he has into this idea, right? So you can hear, I think, the emotion there. And then it says in verse 3, But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name because, here's where we get to the because, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. That was his no. That was God's no to David. I know you have this big thing on your heart that you want to do for me, but you can't because you have blood on your hands. And I want us to just pause there for a second. And I really want you to put yourself in David's shoes when he got that message. Because I think it's easy for us to look at the Old Testament because it's already happened and it's done. And we know that, you know, things end well, right? (laughs) In the New Testament, things end well. But for David in that moment, I just have to wonder how he received that message. Here he is, a friend of God who has gone to battle, who's won all these victories, has been put in this position has blood on his hands, wants to do something for this friend, this God that has rescued him. And for God to look at him and say, no, because you, because of the things that you have done, because of the blood that you have shed, you can't build the temple. And I just have to wonder in that moment if David, if his heart like just sunk into his stomach and, and if he just had this brief moment where he goes, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean about, what does that say about me? Like, how do you view me, God? For me to have blood on my hands, does that, are you saying that I'm not worthy to build the temple? Are you saying that I did something wrong? Is it, am I flawed? Am I tainted? Is that how you see me instead of seeing me as a king who has had faith in you this whole time, who's done my best to follow you, even though he's been completely flawed as a human being? Are you saying that I'm uh, that that's what you you don't see me as your friend and the one that has had faith in you this whole time that you see me tainted with blood on my hands? And because of that, I can't build this for you as an act of worship. I just have to wonder in that moment if if David felt separate, if David felt like something was wrong and that he had done something wrong or that God had seen him as doing something wrong. And maybe I'm reading into scripture too much, but there's something about that because. You can't because. Why? Because you have blood on your hands. You've killed. You've been a man of war. And I just have to think that David in all of his humanness had to have a reaction to that. And I think that that's how a lot of you guys feel out there. I think there's a lot of service members and a lot of first responders out there that go, I feel different. And I, and I, looking at my hands, feel like that's what I see of myself. I feel like I am someone who has taken life. 
I have blood on my hands and I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if I've done something wrong or if I did something right because I came in into all this to do something right. And David came into being a king to be about the Lord's business. He came into being a king to bring peace to the Israelites. And part about part of bringing peace to the Israelites meant war. And that's a lot of what we're going through too as a country that we sign up for this because we want to be about protecting the innocent, even if the innocent is in another country or even if that innocent is down the street in our community and we have to go to war in our own community in order to protect the innocent. We get into doing this because we want to be about doing something good. Unfortunately, we get face to face with evil and good always comes face to face with evil. And it causes us to choose what will we do in that moment when we're faced with evil. And being about the Lord's business, it is clear in the Old Testament, has included God's will that sometimes war and battling and taking out the enemy is part of his design. And I just want to point out here that the reason why God wanted Solomon, as you go through into scripture, At this stage of David's life, peace has now come to the land. He has rest from his enemies. The victory has been won. The temple itself needs to be about peace. It needs to be built during peacetime, and it needs to be built by a king who represents peace and that people see that king as a king of peace. And Solomon ultimately becomes known as a wise king. Not a warrior king, a wise king. And it's during his era that the temple is actually built. And it was God's design that the Israelites saw the temple as a a place of peace and rest and a representation of God's bringing them into the promised land and settling them and giving them rest. That God was a God of rest and could rest with them, built by a king who was a peaceful king. And it wasn't that David being the warrior king was the wrong thing. It was just a different season. God had called David to be that warrior. Peace had been brought to the land because of David being the warrior king that he was. It was because of David's calling on his life that brought peace to the land that then he could pass this down to Solomon and Solomon build the temple instead during a time of peace. And it had nothing to do with David's character. It had nothing to do with what David did. It wasn't that he was less than. It wasn't that God saw him as something different or tainted. And it definitely had nothing to do with their relationship. It was simply God's purpose that Solomon would build the temple instead. Because God had a greater plan for the temple and what it needed to be for the people. David, I think, had charisma And he was a famous person. He was a famous king. Everybody looked up to him as a conqueror. And I think God didn't want the temple to be about um, God being a conquering king. It was time for the Israelites to rest and worship and have God dwell among them during peacetime. And that God could be a peaceful king himself. I believe that they had to have a moment where God said to him, I called you to be a warrior. I have placed a calling on your life to be a warrior, and you have been obedient. I have blessed you, and I have blessed your family because you are obedient in being that warrior. The blood on your hands is there because I allowed it to be there. 
I have allowed this in your life, that nothing goes past me, that I say I'll allow this or I won't allow this. If something happens in our life, God is not ignorant to it happening. It, he has allowed it. And he also, we also have to believe that if we, if we believe that he is sovereign, we also have to believe that God can stop something if he wants to and if it's not in his purpose. So if it happens in our life, he's allowed it. Now, does that mean that he wants those things to happen? Does he want you to have experiences, whether it's child abuse or something traumatic that's happened? Does that mean that he wants you to go through trauma and go through something that breaks your spirit? No, I believe that God is a God that grieves with us, that walks alongside of us as we grow through those experiences and wrestle with them and think about what does that mean? What does it say about me? What does it say about other people? What does it say about sin? What does it say about God? But if we believe that God is sovereign, then we have to believe that what is happening in our life, he's allowed it. And if he's allowed it and we trust him, then we have to believe that if it's not going our way, then we need to believe that he has purpose in it somewhere. We just have to figure out, well, what is God's purpose must be bigger than my purpose. And his purpose is definitely much bigger than my understanding of it. And so in that moment when David got that no, of no, you can't do this because you have blood on your hands, he must have reached a point where he had to say, we know this because he goes into a time of worshiping God. At some point after this no, he goes to worship God. At some point he goes, you have a much bigger purpose than I can ever understand. And I may not like your no, but I'd rather be a part of your purpose and your design and your will and you say no to me than for me to not be part of it at all. God called him to be the warrior that he was and allowed the blood on his hands. Here's the message that I think that we can walk away with. If you are someone out there who has had to make some of these decisions and it's something that you're wrestling with in your spirit, or if you are married to someone who has had to make those decisions, and maybe there's a spouse out there that is wrestling in your own spirit of, of how do I love somebody and how do I wrestle with this within my own spirit of being married to someone who's had to make that decision. I, I never know what you might be struggling with out there. Here is the message I think I want us to walk away with today. God loves you. And he has called you to a, a calling, this lifestyle, that is very special. It takes a very unique and special group of people to serve in this lifestyle. And if you are one of those that took an oath that said, I'm willing to put my own life on the line and I'm willing to do the tough things to protect the innocent and to protect my community and my country, there's something so honorable about that. Jesus himself said, no greater love is there than this, than a man who's willing to, to give his life for another. There is great honor and not just honor like on a military poster, you know, but I mean like great honor from God that you have chosen this lifestyle and you have volunteered to put your life on the line for someone else. And that's why Matt and I love serving this community because it is an incredible community that would choose that for their life. And I believe that God loves you for sure, but that he also honors you that he sees the sacrifice that you are making in your own life to put your life on the line. And spouses out there, he definitely sees your sacrifice too. 
and what it means to support a warrior, to love a warrior. It is not an easy lifestyle that we have chosen. But God has allowed the battles that you've gone through. He has allowed the bloodshed and he has allowed the blood stained on your hands and that he doesn't see you tainted and he doesn't see the blood on your hands. I think when he looks at you, he actually sees his son and he sees the blood shed by his own son who also gave his life for you so that you could have a relationship with God and reconcile that and know that you could also have a friend in God, that he wants that relationship with you the same way he had that relationship with David, that that relationship is bigger than what you've done or not done, and that he loves you so much. He has a plan for your life, and his biggest plan for your life is to draw close to you. And that if you are hesitating in your relationship with God and not drawing close to him because of something that you've done or not done, or the maybe you have blood on your hands, or maybe it's just who you have been and haven't been and some decisions that you've made, that God sees you first and foremost as a child that he wants to draw close to, that he wants to say, I have allowed things in your life and you have to go through this experience, but that he wants you to see that he has conquered sin through his son, Jesus, and that it is through Jesus we have forgiveness. And that it's not even so much that we need forgiveness for taking a life, but sometimes we've got to forgive ourselves and go, that's not what makes me who I am. What God has called you to do, what you've been asked to do, that's not who you are. God sees past all of that and he sees into your heart and he sees who you are and he sees you worthy. And just the way that he saw David and said, It's not that you have blood on your hands that you can't build the temple. It's that you can't build the temple because you're just not the person to build the temple. But guess what? I'm going to still let you be part of the process so that in your lifetime, you get to see the plans. You get to see the materials. You get to still um, have it in your heart to see and know that it's going to come to fruition. But it can't be about you, David. It's got to be about me. God wants to see you have an incredibly blessed and fulfilling life. But it's not about God being on your side. It's about us figuring out how do we be on God's side. God can bring purpose out of anything that you've experienced. God brought had great purpose for the things he asked David to do. We are talking about him thousands of years later as a mighty warrior king who had blood on his hands. And nobody looks at David and goes, man, Look at that guy. Like he was kind of a scary guy. And no, we actually look at David and we go, what a mighty warrior. Even though he was human and flawed, what an incredible warrior who loved God and God loved him and the faith that he had that made him feel like he could go out and win the victories that God had for him. That's what we're talking about. Not about how many people he killed. And spouses that are listening, I just want to point out really quickly that his wife, Bathsheba, later in his years, um, there's a great moment where Bathsheba is the one that stirs David's heart into doing the right thing. You know, Solomon was not first in line to become king. It was actually David's firstborn son that was supposed to be the rightful heir. But obviously, God had told David way back that it was not supposed to be that king, it was supposed to be Solomon. 
this firstborn son actually tries to take over kind of behind King David's back. And we see a little bit of King David not necessarily being a great present father, another one of his flawed sides. He was a great warrior. He was a great leader. He was he was even a great brother, right, to his mighty men, except for that one, right? Um, but, I mean, you can almost see that this was his place. He was better out there than he was even in the home. It's very clear in Scripture that he did not discipline his sons well. He did not, um, he was not very present with his sons. So behind his back, his oldest son, who thought that he should be the rightful heir, goes and, and basically starts, like, making himself king and setting up celebratory events and and parades and, and telling the people that he's king and David does nothing. He's actually just like sitting in his palace, sitting in his room, ignoring the problem. And so that's just one example of, of David not disciplining his sons and being involved like he should have been. And, and possibly a moment where he was potentially moving towards being disobedient to what God had called him to do, right? And it's actually Bathsheba and Nathan. And this is where Nathan shows up again. Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, this is a problem, right? Like, King David's not doing anything. He's not correcting his son. And isn't it Solomon that's supposed to be king? And so Nathan goes to Bathsheba and he says, go to David. You need to go to David and you need to, to hold him accountable. You need to rebuke him. You need to do something. Um, and so basically Bathsheba goes in to David. She goes in and she reminds David of what God had asked him to do. He, she basically lights a fire under David and goes, hey, this is happening. And you can't just sit here and let it happen because remember, God told you it was supposed to be Solomon. And what's going to happen if you don't follow through with what God called you to do? You've got to get up and you've got to go do something and you've got to stop this. And then Nathan comes in behind her as a good friend and goes, David, she's right. You have to do something. And David ultimately does get up and he actually goes and, and anoints Solomon as king right then and there and does the right thing. And so if you are a spouse out there listening, I just want to speak to you just for a moment because I think sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that our spouse, our serving spouse is supposed to be Superman and great at everything. That he can be a great warrior, he can be a great father, he can be a great son, a great husband, and we have this high expectation. And here we even have in the story of David, who is, who is talked about through all of scripture as this mighty king and friend of God, who was also very flawed. He was, in a, he was a mighty warrior, but he struggled on the home front. And if we can give David grace, I think we need to give our spouses grace too, because we're not perfect at everything either. And so I want you to see that God used Bathsheba to speak truth into David's life. And had Bathsheba not been obedient to that, this would have been an entirely different story as well. David would have missed out on even being part of this wonderful moment of passing this back, this desire of his heart onto his son Solomon, knowing that those plans were going to come to fruition. And so if you're a spouse out there, you have a great purpose in loving your warrior. And in marriage, it is important that we are always speaking truth into each other's lives, that we are always on track with God's purpose in our life. And sometimes speaking truth is speaking truth into action, saying, hey, we got to step up our game a little bit. We've got to start acting loving towards each other. We've got to start, maybe it's about eating right or getting in shape or taking care of ourselves or going back to church. Sometimes it's very action oriented. 
And sometimes it's about speaking truth to the heart and it's saying to your warrior, I love you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter that you have blood on your hands, that you are a child of God and you are worthy of a relationship with him. Um, even though you had to make those choices, that that doesn't make you who you are. It is God's love for you and who he created you to be. That's who you are and said, and I love that person. You may know that, but I'm wondering if you've said it and you have great influence and power to speak truth into your spouse's life. So I hope that this was meaningful to you. I hope that it made sense. It's a very complicated topic, but it's one that I think that we have to start wrestling with. And I know that this one episode isn't going to necessarily um, clear out the cobwebs in someone's heart, but I believe it can be a start. Thanks for joining me. I hope you guys have a great week. And I look forward to sharing my next episode where Matt and I actually sit down and talk about family readiness and talk about some really tough topics as it relates to what it means to support our warrior in the next episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these conversations as being free of advertising or sponsorship, please help me by spreading the word to other military and first responder families that might benefit from the show. If you'd like to find out more about me or Life Giver, you can find more information at www.coryweathers.com or life-giver.org.